Welcome to the Stonebridge Community Church Extras podcast based on the Matthew series with your host, Senior Pastor John Sauer. This is episode one. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, and welcome to Stonebridge Extras. I'm Pastor John, the Senior Pastor of Stonebridge Community Church. And Stonebridge Extras is a podcast series where we look at ideas or concepts or themes or questions that just couldn't fit into the sermon series. Right now, we are looking at Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And these passages are full of ethical instructions and teachings, and they're full of Jesus explaining to his disciples how to follow him in this world. And there's so much good stuff, so much that's interesting that we're not going to be able to get to all of it in the sermon series. So here at Stonebridge Extras, I'll be looking at different aspects of the Sermon on the Mount, looking at not just the text itself, but the way it's been received or interpreted, looking at theology around these texts. And I want to just say that when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, there's no way that any one person can encapsulate everything that is worth listening to or reading or knowing about the Sermon on the Mount. Christians have reflected on these three passages, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, for thousands and thousands of years. In fact, I don't know if there's a section of the New Testament that has received more attention than the Sermon on the Mount, and deservedly so. Because in this passage, this is Jesus's clearest teachings. This is his most consistent, his most extensive teachings about how to live life as one of his followers. So, we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking at the actual ethical teachings, and they are ethical teachings, in the sermon series. But what I wanted to begin with, with extras, is something that I I mentioned in the sermon to begin the series, but I want to go a little deeper into it. It's the way in which the Sermon on the Mount has been interpreted, what's called the history of interpretation. Because you have the text you have what we, what Jesus said in these words, but then you also have the way it's been received by the church, the way it's been interpreted, the way it's been upheld or put into practice or not put into practice. And with the Sermon on the Mount, it has a very fascinating history of interpretation, one that parallels what is happening in the church's life and the church's story. So, We're going to be looking at that history of interpretation, and I'm breaking this down into three different sections. The first section is going to be focused on the period in the church's life between Jesus and the Emperor Constantine, and I'll explain why Constantine is so important as we go along here. Then we're going to look at the period between Constantine and what's called the Reformation, really focusing on a theologian named Thomas Aquinas. And then we'll be looking at the Reformation, focusing primarily on Martin Luther, John Calvin, the way that they interpreted the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to be looking at Jesus to Constantine, Constantine to the Reformation, focused on Thomas Aquinas, and then the Reformation focusing on John Calvin and Martin Luther. So that is how we're going to be looking at the history of interpretation here. And let's go into the first section here. 
between Jesus and Constantine, when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, you have an interpretation of this sermon where it is viewed literally. Now, what I mean by literally is the plainest sense of the text is how this passage is interpreted. And the plainest sense of this text is Jesus gives these precepts, these commandments, and he expects his disciples to follow them. So, if you want to be Jesus's follower, you should strive to follow this teaching as best as you can. That's the plainest sense of the text. And that's how the Sermon on the Mount is interpreted. It's interpreted really with Christians trying to do what Jesus says. I'm going to take one example that we did in our first sermon here of the series and look at this precept of do not take an oath. When it came to taking oaths, the early Christians for the first few hundred years wouldn't do it. Now, obviously, there's some some, some counterexamples to that. There's some exceptions that prove the rule. There were people who sold out their Christian brethren by taking oaths, but by and large, Christians expected to follow Jesus' teaching and to not take oaths. And this created problems for them because when you think about it, most oaths, they're focused on the government. It's usually an empire. It's usually a state. It's usually the government that is asking you to take an oath. So for the early Christians, when they wouldn't take Roman oaths, it it meant that they were disloyal or it meant that they couldn't be government officials. So if you wanted to spread to a government official, they'd have to stop taking their oaths. It actually created problems for them. But that was how they interpreted the Sermon on the Mount. And the oaths is just one example that's going to come up again here because we start to see a shift in this interpretation later on. But one source for this is what's been called the didache. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's a Greek word that basically means teaching. And in this document, the didache, the teaching, it's a Christian document that contains ethical instructions very similar to Jesus. And the evidence that we have is that this was passed around to churches and churches tried to follow this. And it's really similar to the Sermon on the Mount. It talks about nonviolence. It talks about not having enemies. It, it's, it reflects the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's a little different at some points, but it does reflect them. So before Emperor Constantine comes on the scene, Christians view the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus says this. Jesus expects us as his followers to try to live up to this. And let's do so. They take this literally. With the Emperor Constantine, things begin to change a little bit. Because what happens with Constantine is Christianity becomes a dominant religion in the empire, in the Roman Empire. Constantine is the Roman emperor who is famous around 320 AD. He's famous as the legend goes that he had a vision before a battle that a Christian symbol floated in the sky above him and said, by this symbol, you will win. So he painted this symbol on his shields of his soldiers and they went out and they fought a battle. Now, think about that story for a second. It gets hailed as a legend or a great story, but 
for a religion that began believing that you turn the other cheek, that you don't retaliate against enemies, to have shifted in a few hundred years to be a symbol of war, where if you paint this symbol on your shields, you're going to win a battle, something has changed. Somebody is not really viewing Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount literally anymore. They've created carve-outs. They've started figuring out how they can escape from this. What you have with Constantine is he begins to use Christian faith to unite the empire. And that might be the less charitable way of saying it. It might also be that he became a Christian himself, though most accounts only have him being baptized on his deathbed well after the scene with the battle. So he doesn't become an actual Christian by most measurements until he's about to die, we're told. But what you have is a bunch of other people who want to support Constantine, Christians who are tired of not having power, Christians who are tired of being persecuted, which we can understand. But it's really hard to be in a government official role in the Roman Empire and not take an oath. I'm going back to that oath example here because this is the one where you start to see in the first 300 years of the church's life, they try to not take oaths. After Constantine, it changes. They start saying there's no way that Jesus meant don't take any oath ever, that some oaths have to be okay. And you start getting a carve out of Jesus's ethical instructions. And they start saying, Jesus couldn't have meant this entirely. It's just not practical. Now, for better or for worse, that is just what is said. And we have to acknowledge, we all do that to a certain extent. I don't know if all of us look at the Sermon on the Mount and figure out how to live this out perfectly. So the whole carve-out idea, I'm not saying that pejoratively. It's actually really just what's happened with the Sermon on the Mount. Because from this point on with Constantine, this becomes more and more normal. Now, one exception to this is Augustine. Augustine is a giant of theology. In the, in the 400s, late 300s, early 400s, he is writing, and he writes two volumes on the Sermon on the Mount. He's probably the one who gave us the title Sermon on the Mount, who called this first the Sermon on the Mount. But Augustine says, no, this applies for all Christians at all times. So as late as Augustine, you still have a prominent theologian arguing that this is literal teaching that Jesus' followers are supposed to follow in their lives. But you have other officials saying, no, no, we can take oaths to the government because the ends justify the means and there's no way Jesus would not want us to do that so that we can have power in the Roman government. So all that to say, around Constantine, you start to see a crack in the literal interpretation. Now let's jump ahead pretty significantly, um, hundreds and hundreds of years, to a theologian named Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas is what's called a scholastic theologian. He worked to incorporate some of Aristotle, some Greek logic into Christian theology and build up a system around Christian theology that logically, rationally could help support or not necessarily prove, but support Christian faith. And he would develop arguments and using Greek syllogisms 
he would develop arguments for the veracity of Christian faith. And when Thomas Aquinas comes to the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to make a distinction. He, be, he makes a distinction between what he calls precepts and what he calls evangelical counsels. So he looks at the Sermon on the Mount and he says, what here looks like an actual commandment and what looks like a commandment that implies an obligation? We basically, which of these are mandates and which of these are recommendations? Which of these are necessary and which of these are optional? And he begins going through different teachings and arguing for which one falls into which category. So Thomas Aquinas, by the time we get to him, it's fairly standard to have carve-outs from the Sermon on the Mount for Christians to be able to say, no, no, Jesus wasn't saying we had to actually do all of this. This is just recommended. This is just optional. So we don't actually have to turn the other cheek. We don't actually have to go the extra mile. We can take as many oaths as we want. So now that's probably a little more crass than the way Thomas Aquinas crafts it. He does a more elegant job of it, but in effect, that's what the view ends up leading to. Is Christians not really taking this seriously? They have, again, carve-outs. In Thomas Aquinas' view, it becomes dominant. This is, becomes the way that people interpret the Sermon on the Mount. With some of this stuff, you have to do it. Some of it, you don't. And you argue and you debate over which pieces actually apply for the Christian life. That then brings us to the Reformation period. So when we're tracking it so far, first 300 years, we have a literal interpretation. These are Jesus' teachings. This is what we are supposed to do. Try to apply it to your life as best as you can. When Constantine becomes emperor, that begins to crack a little bit. Christians become people in power and they start taking oaths. They stop turning the other cheek and they begin viewing the Sermon on the Mount as something that is idealistic. It's meant to give us a lofty standard to try to live up to, but we're never going to actually live up to it, and we have to live in the real world now. So there's practical carve-outs. And by the time you get to Thomas Aquinas, you have the language of precepts and evangelical counsels. The precepts are commandments. The evangelical counsels are optional. And Christians talk themselves out of actually doing what Jesus says to do at this point. And that brings us to the Reformation. Reformation, 1500s. And Martin Luther, he is the leading reformer. Now, other reforms had started. Um, Ulrich Zwingli would be mad at me right now for saying that Martin Luther was the lead reformer. You can Google Zwingli and learn about him. He's quite a character. But Luther is really the one who gets the credit. And he's the one who begins the fragmenting and the fracturing of the church with his 95 theses. And for Luther, when he looks at the Sermon on the Mount, you have to keep in mind too, Luther was adamantly opposed to any type of law or biblical legal document or idea that was tied to salvation. 
I mean, Luther hated the idea of works righteousness. So when he looked at the Sermon on the Mount, he didn't want to view this as any type of new law, really. And he looked at people who, during the Reformation, were taking the Sermon on the Mount and treating it like the law and trying to radically follow Jesus's words. And sometimes they did that in a way that was destructive for the church. They did it in a self-righteous, high and mighty way. And Luther does call them out on that. But Luther has what's called a a two-kingdom approach. That there's the spiritual and the secular. The kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the world. And that the Sermon on the Mount applies to the kingdom of Christ. But that in the kingdom of the world, it can't apply in the same way. And to those who are radically trying to follow the Sermon on the Mount and live it out, Luther tells them, you're confusing the spiritual with the secular. But Luther also says, the life in Christ is what takes precedent. So the kingdom of Christ is more powerful than the kingdom of the world. So the precepts in the Sermon on the Mount, they are meant to guide life to Luther. And we don't get to just completely pick and choose. But Luther does have what I would consider a carve-out also. He makes a distinction between the person and the office. So an individual Christian could be in a situation where something they're being asked to do violates the Sermon on the Mount. And as an individual person and as a Christian, they, they can't do that. But there are times, according to Luther, when they are called to fulfill a certain office. And that office, and when I say office, I mean more role, not like an office building. But the role that they're in requires them to set aside Jesus's commandments. And according to Luther, that is just, and that is okay. So for Luther, a Christian is obligated to try to follow the Sermon on the Mount, not for salvation, but because these are the words of our Lord and he's showing us what the kingdom of Christ looks like. But if they're in a certain office or an official role that places them in the kingdom of this world and that that role requires them to violate the Sermon on the Mount, they are justified in doing so. So, Luther, in a different way, in a different language, and not as expansively or as easily as Thomas Aquinas, but Luther, at the end of the day, kind of ends up in the same place as Thomas Aquinas. There are reasons to not take the Sermon on the Mount literally. So, finally, I'll bring us to John Calvin here. John Calvin, he's of generation after Luther. They, they did interact. But John Calvin, he really didn't like the idea, similar to Luther, that the Sermon on the Mount was a, a new law. He didn't really think that that was a, a good way of going about this, of interpreting this. So for John Calvin, though, what he advocates when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount is basically we really have to look closely at each one. 
he would he would not take the Sermon on the Mount on its own and interpret it by itself. He would call what he would use what's called the analogy of faith. So he would look at other passages and use that to determine if the certain precept of Jesus should be followed. So for instance, I'm going back to the idea of oaths again, because it comes up over and over again. For John Calvin, there's numerous other teachings in the Bible that lift oaths up positively. So for him, there would be a time in which we could take an oath. And for him, it's not that all oaths are unlawful, but it's oaths that abuse or profane the sacred name of God. So for Calvin, his thought is, we are supposed to take this seriously, but when scripture seems to override one of Jesus's teachings, or when there's ample evidence elsewhere in scripture that Jesus can't mean all oaths at all times, it's okay to deviate from Jesus's teaching. So he has a little bit of a carve out there also. So where does this leave us? With the Sermon on the Mount and with the way it's been received, what you can see pretty clearly is early in the church's history, Christians for hundreds of years tried to follow Jesus' teachings literally. As in, the intent of this passage is to present these as ethical teachings that Jesus lays out for his disciples and that Jesus expects his disciples to follow. With Constantine ascending to power, you start to get some nuance of the Sermon on the Mount and the way it's received. Some carve-outs start to be developed there, and largely for practical reasons. By the time you get to Thomas Aquinas, the carve-outs are no longer just practical, they're part of standard theology. He's the one who distinguishes between precepts and evangelical councils. So he has categories and terms, and he puts different parts of the sermon into different categories and different terms. And then by the time we get to Martin Luther, you can see that Christians have taken advantage of this whole paradigm of precepts and evangelical counsels to ignore the Sermon on the Mount. So Luther tries to bring the church back to the Sermon on the Mount as something that is meant to instruct us for how to live life, but even he thinks that there are certain points in which this isn't practical. And if you fulfill a certain office or a certain role, you should be able to walk away from the Sermon on the Mount. And then John Calvin, he doesn't really buy into, from what I've seen, he doesn't really buy into Luther's distinguishing between office and role, but he just says, we have to look at scripture all together. And we have to decide if something is actually applicable or if there's a nuance to it based on the testimony of other passages of scripture. So that brings us to John Calvin and brings us up from that point. And you can kind of see how the Sermon on the Mount, it gets received and interpreted differently. And a question for each and one of us that I want to leave you with, each and every one of us that I want to leave you with is, how would you interpret Jesus' teachings? I challenged everybody last week to take a look at Matthew 5 through 7 to mark some teachings that are difficult. Do you think that in this passage, when you read it, that Jesus provides any sort of carve-outs? Do you think that Jesus has any sort of idea that some of these would be precepts and some of these would be counsels? 
Do you think that Jesus has any sort of teaching that there's a role you could fill that then causes you to come into conflict with the Sermon on the Mount and it's okay to not fulfill the Sermon on the Mount or not try or set it aside? What do you think? So I invite you to ponder that for this next week. God bless you all. I look forward to talking with you next week. 